You're listening to the Sports Blog New York podcast. My name is Peter Kennedy, and I am your host. The NBA draft is officially here. This episode is released day of, so hopefully you're catching it early because we broke down so much in regards to today's NBA draft. But first, the SBNY podcast is on iTunes, Apple Podcast app, Google Play, and now on Spotify. Also, as always, shout out to our friends at Team Left Jab, Team Left Jab Radio on Blog Talk Radio, Stitcher, helping us out and spreading the love, putting the SBNY podcast on multiple feeds, so check them out as well. And as always, thank you for listening. Today, my guest is one of my guys, my favorite people to talk to draft with, Gabe Allen. What's up, my man? Pete. Great to hear from you, bud. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Gabe Allen of the Lottery Mafia, also the proud owner of what I am proclaiming to be the best review in sports blog New York podcast history. I shouted out a couple of episodes ago, but Gabe, you wrote such kind words on the iTunes review machine that it, it, it really meant so much to me, and it was awesomely said. I can't believe you used such kind words to describe this podcast, but thanks for that, man. An award? Yeah. Did you say something about me getting an award? Yes. Best reviewer. Right. It's, a, it's a very prestigious. You're going to get something in the I, mail. I gladly accept. I accept my reward. But you did mention something about um, you know, it being a podcast that f- fulfills all of your sports talk needs in regards to you know, being the angel on one side of your shoulder, the devil. You said it so much more eloquently. So why don't listeners go to iTunes and check out Gabe's review and then drop one <laughs> in of your own? Because, Gabe, you said it so beautifully, and it means a lot that you enjoy the podcast, and it's also awesome that you come on here to talk hoops with me as well. It's always fun, and uh, you and Duff do a great job. And uh, always fun when you guys have on have the outsiders on too. You guys keep it light and lively and uh, keep the hot takes flowing. Don't, just enough. Don't give Duffy any credit, all right? <laughs> <laughs> Even when I don't agree, you guys are always entertaining. So Hey, and that's what it's keep all up, about. Keep the good work. Thank you, Gabe. That's what it's all about. You know, we're not here to agree. Maybe we will agree sometimes. Actually, in regards to this podcast, there were some agreements. There were some disagreements, but we had Ooh, good— Too much, too much agreement for my—, for my... Come on. Hey, there were there were some agreements, but there was a great breakdown, and that's what's really important. So you listeners can now take our breakdowns of all these prospects we talked about, uh, put it in your mind, mix it up, spit it out, and make up your own opinions. That's what it's all about. The breakdown was here. NBA draft. Me and Gabe talked about prospects from one to friggin' sixty. If you think about it, we obviously skipped some in between, but the dialogue was there, the discourse was there, and it was a lot of fun. So Gabe, thank you for coming on the Sports Blog New York podcast with me. NBA draft is tonight. For you people listening at home or on the road in your car, stay tuned. Here we go, Sports Blog New York Podcast. I'm here with Gabe Allen of the Lottery Mafia. If you've been a listener of the SBNY podcast, you've heard him before, and it may have been talking draft because I don't love talking draft with many more people than Gabe Allen. Gabe, what's up, dog? Oh wow, what a nice thing to say. It's true. I mean, we were just, you know, shooting it before we started recording here and we were reminiscing to our old pod and the takes about Luka Doncic and your <clears throat> sarcastic love of DeAndre Ayton and your hot take on Mitch Rob Mitchell Robinson, which sounds pretty good at this point in time. And uh, it's a good time to be a draft lover because it's it's here and it snuck up on us. I'll say that. 
Well, if you take enough shots, you make one eventually. So <laughs> I'll be throwing out as many hot takes as I can come up with tonight, too. And that's all we can ask for. I mean, also, did it kind of seem, I think this happens every once in a while, depends on how long the finals go and um, how long each series go, but did this feel like a really quick turnaround with this Oh, draft? it's definitely much shorter this year. I think it's been at least you know half a week or a week later, usually. The 20th is definitely the earliest I can remember it being in some time. I don't want to come on here in a podcast where we're going to talk about the draft for the whole time and say that I, I feel unprepared, but mentally, not about these guys. I've been kind of looking at these guys for the entire season and ramped it up over the past week or so. Um, I'm mentally unprepared that it's happening already, if that makes sense. like it. Oh, really, I think we're really all in the same me. boat. We're all in that same boat, and, and we might be tipped over by by tomorrow. And another thing that's been pretty interesting in the NBA world is the no lack of news when it comes to players turning down their options. Uh, a trade that we had with Mike Conley getting sent to the Utah Jazz for Grace Nall and Kyle Korver, two first-round picks. So the NBA Twitter world and the NBA news world has not taken one moment to break. It hardly took a moment to congratulate the Toronto Raptors, who I still struggle to believe are the NBA champions, but it happened, and it was pretty awesome despite the injuries. Um, first off, before we get into these prospects and talk about this draft big picture, what do you think of Mike Conley getting sent to the Jazz? Uh, I mean, got to like it for the for the Jazz. Uh, it would be interesting to see how they fill out their rotation. Crowder was, I mean, he's not a household name, but he was probably their best power forward this past year. So it'd be interesting to see how they kind of retool their team, uh, given that that's always been kind of a weak spot in their rotation. And, you know, I, I don't think they can really rely on Gobert and Favors to play a ton of minutes together going forward. So and I'm, I think it'll be interesting to see what they do. Absolutely. What, what do you think about it? Well, I'm not trying to compare Mike Conley to Kawhi Leonard, but do you think that the success the Raptors saw with kind of, you know, Throwing things that were important to you away for the Jazz would be first-round picks uh, of the future and a first-round pick that is put on Grayson Allen, plus Jay, Crow Jay Crowder, who you just mentioned, was an important role player for them last year. Like They threw a lot out there to bring in a better player than all of those pieces in Mike Conley. Do you think the success of the Kawhi Leonard trade is now going to force teams or at least make teams seriously consider taking that swing to make upgrades, even if the contracts may be a little scary? Um, yeah, I mean, I think Conley is a little bit different in that situation, but I think it more just shows that teams are trying to pounce now with the Warriors, uh, you know, not going to be what they have, what they've been next year, unfortunately. Um, so you know, I think that's, that's the main takeaway is that teams are really, really going for it next year. And I think that's a good thing, right? That's a great thing for the league. I know I've been frustrated over the past couple of years. I think we may have talked about it in the past as well, how many let's say average NBA fans, people who aren't hardcore about it would complain that the Warriors were the favorite. We know it's going to be the Warriors. We know it's going to be this and that, uh, that that's over now, right? This league's wide open and that's exciting. Now we'll see if those average NBA fans actually kind of, you know, show up after they talked all this crap for the past five years that they now say, Oh, look, there's parody. Parody's good, right? That's what you've been asking for. Because I've been telling you that even though you don't want to admit it, people love dynasties. Now we should have some real parody. We don't know who the real favorite is. I think it's going to be exciting, but I could imagine some of these fair-weathered fans still not being too into it. Yeah, I think the I think the Jazz fans in the front office has to be psyched because I don't. They usually don't give up their first-round picks like almost under any circumstances. They're they hold their they hold on to their picks and 
and they have a you know a pretty good draft history too. So that's why. Yeah. So they must really they must be really excited about this. And one one basketball fit thing for Conley and the Jazz. I mean Mitchell's fantastic. I think everybody loves his game and loves his aggression and his scoring ability. The one thing he is is not super efficient yet from the field, especially in and around the rim. And he is a little loose with the ball. He's not a true point guard. He's learning how to be. So to have one of the most sure-handed point guards, he's not the most flashy assist number guy. He's not going to average 11 assists like some of these other Russell Westbrooks of the world. He's not going to average 24 points, but he's not going to turn the ball over. He's going to shoot efficient shots from the three-point line. Nice floater game, and he will not make many mistakes. I think that's going to be huge for the Jazz, especially come playoff time when they need a little extra playoff punch and some control on that offense. Um, any last thoughts here, or you want to want to get this draft thing going? Uh, no, I would just say that, obviously, getting Conley helps Mitchell a lot. Uh, and just now he's going to, it's going to be possible to get some 11 assist games maybe because you're going to maybe you're going to have a little bit more spacing than they've had in the past. Obviously jazz have won mostly with defense and, and grit over the last few years. So opening up the floor a little bit, definitely going to help Mitchell help him show that he can pass a little bit better than maybe we give him credit for at this point. But yeah, let's get on to the draft. Yeah. I see, um, floaters that we think are shots as lobs in Gobert's future. Oh that's, yeah. That's what I'm imagining. But yeah, let's do it. So, there's so much to talk about with this draft. There's a lot of different angles. Uh, to give a quick overarching statement here before we dive into these specific names of people, a lot of people say it's a three-person draft. That's what we've been hearing probably since the middle of the college season where John Morant really burst onto the scene as this surefire top five pick and then top three pick and then top two pick. And Zion, as we know, is number one. Barrett, number three. Many people are very happy with the sweeping this is a three-person draft take i don't know how i feel about that but we're here to dive into it you are also hearing that four through 12 are super interchangeable many people's big boards are different and then it gets even more mucky as you go on through the end of the lottery through the end of the first round beginning of the second round so in short there are a few players who people have a lot of confidence in and then there are a lot of players who have little to no confidence or their range even goes higher from high confidence to no confidence. It's very strange, but it's very interesting. And uh, we'll see what happens tomorrow. But for now, let's talk about some of these guys. So, Gabe, first things first, let's just do a quick minute on Zion. He deserves it. He's the surefire number one pick. We all know it. It's been there since basically the first game of the college season, even though before the first game of the college season, it wasn't there. We do forget that sometimes. But as soon as we saw him play at Duke, we knew he was number one. Is there any reason to concern yourself with how his game will translate to the NBA. Because we've heard all the praise about his defense, his uh, rim finishing, his rim protection, his passing, his motor, his smile, his personality. Is there anything that you would warn the Pelicans and say, hey, make sure he gets in the gym and works on these things? No, not not really. There are much bigger concerns in this life than worrying about Zion Williamson. He's going to be just fine. He's going to be awesome. And, uh, yeah, no, we shouldn't we shouldn't be worried at all. So the jump shot obviously isn't the prettiest, but it does work pretty effectively. It's obviously not super efficient. There's no worry for you that he won't be able to get that shot off at the next level? Not really. I, I think he's just so strong attacking the basket. I mean, I think he's, he can play with the ball or as the, as, the screen, as the screener and dive to the hoop. So I think there's just so many ways to utilize him that – even if he's not going to shoot, shoot that well. And let's not forget, he did shoot 33%, not a great mark from college, but this is a huge upgrade from high school. I'm not sure what was what his numbers were there, but he was basically showing no semblance of a jumper in high school. 
And then he was actually he actually had the highest three point percentage, I believe, uh, at least among the starters for uh, for Duke. So which is hilarious because Cam Reddish was supposed to be a sharpshooter. He was supposed to space the floor for everybody, and he obviously had a weird freshman year. But yeah, thirty four percent from three, sixty four from free throw, which a lot of people are really looking at that free throw percentage in college as a bigger translation point to how they'll shoot from three at the next level. 64 isn't awesome, but it does show a sign of promise. And like we said about Zion Williamson, I mean, the personality, the love for the game, the will to win, all seems to point that he will just work at his weaknesses and become better and better and better. And like you so eloquently said it right off the bat, there's much bigger things in life to worry about than Zion Williamson. He's the, the surefire number one pick. Does he remind you of anyone specific or a combination of some of our game's best players? Well, I mean, people throw out Larry Johnson and Charles Barkley, so maybe some combination of those type of guys, or like a Shaq. But, but I mean, I think ideally, eventually he's going to be playing the role where the, the – the Giannis role where he's got the ball and, and he's making things happen. So, I mean, he's got right for right now, he's got two point guards that are going to set him up very nicely. Uh, so I don't expect him to spend a ton of ton of time initiating the offense at this point. Uh, but I think eventually that that's something that he'll be doing a lot more frequently. That's very interesting that Giannis com- comparison, because you don't really hear that a ton because when you look at their body types, they're kind of opposites in the sense that Giannis is long and super lanky and Zion is compact and thick. So they're they're very different in that aspect, but the way they can finish at the rim, finish through contact, have a jumper that is growing, and is it's doable for now, but it should grow over time. I like that comp. And I also, the one thing that comes to my mind when I watch Zion and when I think about how he can u- be used the next level is Draymond Green. And that might seem like a little bit of an undersell for a number one overall pick, but I mean Draymond Green who finishes better at the rim and is more explosive, more athletic, obviously those things, but the way he can work on the short roll off pick and rolls and the way he can pass and really see the floor and switch on defense, that screams Draymond to me just with more offensive upside. Yeah, Draymond's actually my favorite comparison for him, honestly, because he just does all the little things. He's clearly just light years ahead in terms of his basketball IQ, So, and he's obviously a great passer too. So, I mean, he's got he's got the whole package. He, he's a Draymond, but... I think he's going to be a threat to basically dunk on you every time you're down the court. So, I mean, I think that's the main difference is that he's got a lot more aggressive mindset in terms of attacking, scoring himself. But then he does pretty, then maybe he's going to be on, on the level of Draymond eventually in those other areas too, which is really scary. It's super, super scary. Can't wait to see that take place on the NBA floor. Let's keep it moving through number two and three in this quote, three person draft. I say with just a drip of sarcasm, we have John Moran, RJ Barrett, um, not the same type of player. Obviously, Jaws a point guard. R.J. Barrett is a wing who does like to handle the ball and, and be the main uh, focal point of an offense, but they're different players. Uh, you know, Mock drafts mostly have John Morant 2, R.J. Barrett 3, but big boards do have some variations. Some big boards do have R.J. Barrett ahead of Jaw, and others have Jaw with the lead. Now, I'll preface this question with this from last year. When I did uh, a friend of mine's radio show last year, he asked me who's going to be the number one pick in the draft. I said, well, let me make sure you mean what you mean. Do you want to know who's going to be the number one pick, or do you want to know who's going to be the best player? Because last year I felt very strongly that Luka was the best player, but I also felt strongly DeAndre Ayton would be number one uh, off the board. So with Ja Morant R.J. Barrett, we feel pretty strongly that Ja's going to Memphis at two and R.J. at three to the Knicks, but do you feel strongly on who may be a better NBA player? 
Um, I would go with, I would side with Ja. I don't know. I'm not 100% sold on either one of them. I would say I'm a little bit more sold on Morant. I just maybe it's something about stylistically. I, mean, I think it's it's probably a lot to do with his passing ability and his vision, his just his basketball intelligence level versus Barrett. I'm not sure that he's really on that same level. Um, so you know, I'm gonna, usually I'm going to bet on smarts in that kind of situation. I just, also I think again some of it is just stylistically and just a preference for watching. Sometimes that I'll admit that gets in the way <laughs> and. I mean, he just, for whatever reason, he scratches that Iverson itch for me. With the ultra-athleticism, the wow moves, the wow passes, and especially at the college level, there was moments where it felt like he his passes were too ahead. I felt this with Trey Young at times at Oklahoma, where he would make a pass that was so forward-thinking or so anticipated that his teammates wouldn't know it's coming or wouldn't be ready for it. And we felt that from time to time with Morant. And that being said, he still averaged 10 assists a game, which in the NBA is impressive. In college, that almost never happens. Yeah, and I'm just to clarify, obviously Morant's a much better, much more willing, much better passer than Iverson. Um, not going to be scoring at that level, I would assume. If he is, then he's going to be ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think just that slender frame, and I think people forget Iverson was ridiculously athletic in his early years. So I think people tend to mem- think of him when they think of him, they think of, you know, his MVP season or later, which, all right, let's face it, he wasn't really throwing down right. that much. But early in college days, early NBA career, this guy was tipping in dunks off of missed free throws, doing all kind of craziness. So it is a good point. We always tend to remember, you know, the end of a prime, even even now, like, LeBron James, obviously, we know the crux of his work and what he's been able to do over the course of time. But I think, you know, the first LeBron James that comes into our head is the one that we've seen last year, the year before, the year before that. And granted, he throws down sick dunks in transition, and he does pretty incredible stuff athletically all the time. It almost doesn't even touch what he did when he was 24 through 28, when he was flying around the court and throwing down insane alley-oops. He's not doing that quite as much, but you do have to remember that those things happen. And a guy like AI, we definitely forget. Uh, I think with John Moran, too, the, the wingspan thing really helps him because he's a little bit slender, right? He's not a thick guy. And obviously, we've seen in playoffs where point guards who can't hang defensively, who can get bullied around, can get picked out by good offenses. That could be a slight concern, but he's super athletic. He's pretty strong, and the long arms will definitely help him in that regard. So I'm not yeah, worried. Unfortunately, about him. that's part. That's probably part of the Iverson comp there. Unfortunately, is just the not giving a heck on 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 defense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's... And then making some really impressive plays. You know, maybe in the passing lanes or whatnot. So when he turns it on, right, make a play. But Iverson was, could actually be. He was a pretty damn good defender at times, and the steals were always up there in the, in the league leaders. John Morant might be. Steals were always there, but the on the on ball defense, off ball defense, it was generally saving himself for the other end and giving a li- very little crap on on defense which is indifference for defense is probably he probably hated defense more than he hated passing and practice well <laughs> yeah that's, that's somewhere that's probably in between somewhere in between talking about practice uh i think <laughs> what happened to with the ncaa tournament the way it went down i mean even though john morant's team lost they were underdogs they weren't expected to do much they won their first game which was huge he looked fantastic which was huge and in con- uh, comparison, R.J. Barrett had a very weird season where he got overshined by Zion Williamson despite averaging one of the best point-per-game totals in Duke history, especially for a freshman. 
and showing signs of some good passing and showing signs of being a go-to guy late in games. He did have a semi-negative season based off of some of the efficiency stuff, some of the reported selfishness towards end of games. He's much more of a controversial uh, prospect. With R.J. Barrett, you obviously said you like Morant better. Is there one thing that you can hang your hat on and say, this will definitely translate, and then what's the thing you'd worry about most? I mean, he obviously wants it. I think that's gonna that's gonna stick for for better or for worse. I mean, he he wants he wants to be the guy. So, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of scenarios where he turns into somebody that's not that efficient. Maybe like maybe like a little bit bigger, like Monte Ellis or something like that. Like I could see I could see that being his outcome. But there's the ups- I mean, there's the upside that's gonna translate too. He's definitely accomplished a lot in his basketball career. So, I mean, we're it's not like we're talking about a bad prospect, but I'm just generally lower on Barrett. I, I think it's more likely that he ends up leading a team that's not that great, and he's right. just putting up the empty stats. So that's my fear with him. Right. With the the NBA draft.ringer.com, the Ringer draft guy, which I find great the way they break all the stuff down, they have Jalen Rose, Alpha Andrew Wiggins, Harrison Barnes, and Rudy Gay. Not looked at as fantastic comps for a guy who is the number one recruit coming into the season uh, but the comps do make sense you know with the scoring ability the ability to handle the ball enough uh, to do something on your own but before I get into the fit with the Knicks because I think it's important here once we get to three we talk about a little bit of a fit with the team because I think you know Jaws obvious the Memphis Grizzlies just traded their point guard they need him Zion Williams is obvious for RJ Barrett with the Knicks maybe we can argue but before we get there is there a prospect four through 12 or whatever the hell you may think that you would actually put higher than RJ Barrett on this board? Well, under the right circumstances, I would say Culver. I mean, I think in, in a situation where, I mean, this is some revisionist stuff, but suppose you're, you're getting Durant a healthy, you know, whatever, suppose you're getting a, a great free agent hall as the Knicks and you know, you're, you're drafting a player that you want to be able to fit in with, what you have going on because you're going to be a good team. I would say Culver is definitely a, is it would be a way more ideal player to have in that situation. Now I think you can easily argue just draft Barrett and then trade him, like kind of like Wiggins was another right. former Canadian who is super hyped coming out of high school, right? Um, so I mean I think I think honestly I I think Culver is the better prospect personally. I understand if you're the Knicks, especially right now with the way things have shaken out that you just take Barrett and hope hope for the upside, hope that he turns into, you know, he's something sparks and he's like James Harden somehow or something. Right. I guess. That's the pipe I, dream know, for him, right? I'm, I'm, I'd be less, you know, appalled at that. But Culver over Barrett is definitely one of my few strong takes in this class. I like that. And we'll get to Culver in a second because I think he's he, – he now is the, the linchpin to the draft, him, Garland, Hunter, and a few other folks. But – with the Knicks and with the Barrett thing, tell me if this thought process is crazy because as a Knicks fan, I try to do most of the stuff not being a fan. I, I think I do an okay job, but I do have to put my Knicks fan hat on as I actually do have a Knicks hat on at the moment. Um, is, there, <laughs> is there something to this theory or this way of thinking? R.J. Barrett is the more hyped prospect. He is probably the higher potential prospect by almost every single account uh, out there right now. There is something to drafting R.J. Barrett and if he fails, it's 
more acceptable. And this sounds like a loser's mentality, so I feel weird even saying it out loud, but I need to finish this thought. <laughs> if you take Barrett and he kind of falls off or he fails or he doesn't reach expectations, it's an easier pill to swallow than if you jump Barrett, take Culver, Garland, or Hunter, or somebody else, and then if they don't pan out, that means you tried to be too cute and it didn't work. Is there something to just take Barrett? He is the more surefire potential prospect than these other guys. These other guys may have higher floors but lower ceilings. Is there a loser mentality in there, or is that kind of a wise way to run a front office? I mean, at the worst case, you can draft Barrett, and he's probably going to be tradable, at least if you get off of him soon enough. So, I mean, you could still get some value back. I, you know, I think pretty much everyone would pick Barrett. It's not like anybody's going to look back on that and be like, oh, well, you really screwed that up. You know, I mean, I think he's, like, like you said, it's, everyone's saying it's consensus three player draft, and he's part of those three players. So, at the end of the day, it's not like anybody's going to really blame the Knicks for this. It's not like you're going to be like, oh, why did you go and get Steve Francis or, or <laughs> any of the other million things uh, that the Knicks have done that you could be like easily just look back and be like, wow, that was ridiculous. Marbury, Stoudemire, a whole bunch of stuff. There's not too many things. Too many things to talk about the Knicks there. So I think, I think we're on the same page there because nothing has changed from lottery night other than some private workouts and a draft combine. Um, nothing much has changed other than the fact that R.J. Barrett may be the number one prospect for being verbal about how bad he wants to play for the Knicks. Isn't that kind of weird? Like, am I the only one who thinks that it's a little weird how vocal he's been about wanting to play for the Knicks? Well, based on his performance against Texas Tech and his lone garden game, I would say this is a little bit surprising. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Shots fired. Oh. But, yeah, I mean, Culver completely outplayed him in that game. And they, but, uh, you know, but uh, no, I mean, he wants the bright, he wants the bright lights. He wants the ball and, and he wants to tell Zion Williamson to get out of the way. It's his, it's his rock. So, so be it. You know, what's funny about what you just said. I actually find that dynamic very interesting because they seem super tight off the court on the court. They weren't a match made in heaven, even though they made it work a lot. They did have struggles. Isn't it weird that people are rumoring and maybe without source, but people are rumoring around that the Pelicans would be interested in trading for three to reunite Zion and RJ. Like they're not really that great a fit together. Yeah. I just don't see it. I mean, again, I don't see the reason for taking the ball out of Zion's hand to give it to RJ. I mean, I didn't, you didn't see it at college and I'm certainly not seeing it in the future. So yeah, I mean, I think it would, it's interesting to kind of look at it and see which and ask which team would want to offer you know, maybe their their current draft pick and then a future asset for RJ. Is there another team that values RJ that much? Right. Yeah, it's interesting, especially with Lonzo Ball, Drew Holiday, two other guys who are going to be touching the ball a decent amount. You know, throwing RJ Barrett in there would be the wrong type of wrinkle. The Pelicans would be the type of team who want Culver or want Garland or want Hunter, somebody who, well, Garland would need the ball as well, but he'd be more, you know, behind those guys. But Culver and Hunter... They don't seem to need the ball as much. They would actually fit next to guys who need the ball, like Zion, Lonzo, and Drew. So I think we're on the same page there. Let's keep this thing moving. Let's talk about number four. Uh, It's the linchpin of the draft, as many people are saying. There's Garland, there's Culver, there's Hunter. Before we get into those three guys, is there another person who you want to throw in that mix for number four? Uh, You said Hunter, Garland, and Culver. Um, I mean, it seems like those are pretty much, those are definitely going to be the picks. Some someone in that in that range. So no, probably not. So out of those three, it seems you like Culver the most. What do you like most about J- uh, Jack Culver? I mean, he's just super well rounded, and he has the NBA you know height and wingspan. He's 
I tend to fall for the late bloomers a little bit. I mean, and he's certainly that. He was, I think, like 300th ranked high school prospect. And so when you've made all this improvement, in, you know, recently, it speaks to, okay, well, don't you think there's going to be a pretty good chance that he's going to continue to improve? So, right. And, and, you know, I think some of it is like, okay, they hold on and beat Duke at MSG or, and, or they, they win that final game against Virginia where, you know, Culver had a really bad meltdown on the last defensive possession in uh, regulation that led to Hunter hitting that three. But I'm saying you win one or two of those games, how much higher is Culver's stock right now? Right. So I think he's definitely in terms, and like you look at literally every champion over the last five years, five to 10 years, and they have a star wing player that plays offense and defense. I love it. I love that you just so, said that. I, I mean, and that's, that's another area that we didn't really touch with Barrett is the lack of defense. And so he, that's, he, that's another main reason that I'm taking Culver over Barrett, just if I'm ranking prospects. Barrett is the more hypothetical defender where Culver was an actual defender in college, and that makes a difference. Hypothetical, as we saw with Wiggins. We, I mean, when we were talking about Wiggins in the draft, we were like, this dude at very minimum, will be a defensive stopper and a guy who can put the ball in the hoop at least a little bit. And it turns out he's the exact opposite. He can put the ball in the hoop pretty inefficiently, and he doesn't defend 80% of the time. So hypothetical defense doesn't really cut it for you, I can tell. And for me, I'm, I'm in the same boat. And I love that you just said the wings run this league because so many people come out with this sweeping statement. It's a point guard league. It's a point guard league. And I get it. I get where that comes from. You watch Curry, Lillard, Kemba, Kyrie. Well, it's a league where wings play point guard. Exactly. It's. I always say this is not a point guard league. <laughs> it's a ball-dominant wing league. Because if you think about the true success of the NBA, other than Steph Curry being the best player on a championship team, it's been LeBron. It's been Kawhi. And before that, it was Kobe. It was Kevin Durant. It, it was guys who are bigger, who can take a beating, who can finish through contact, who, when push comes to shove, can just be like, I'm getting a bucket or I'm getting to the free throw line. And point guards don't always have that ability. And point guards look great for 82 games when they're playing with a lot of space and a little bit less focused defenses against them. But when it comes to push comes to shove in the playoffs, you need Kawhi, you need Giannis, you need even Paul George, as we saw with Russell Westbrook. You know, we didn't think of the Thunder as anything until Paul George looked like an MVP candidate. Granted, his injury kind of derailed their playoff hopes, but we didn't take them serious until they had MVP candidate Paul George at wing. So I'm, I'm really on board with what you just said there, and I try to say that on this pod as much as possible. This league's about the wings, man. Point guards are cute. Yeah. They're great. They put up numbers. Assists are cool. But when it comes down to it, give me a six foot seven wing who can do a little bit of everything and put the ball in the hoop. Yeah, and, and even if they're not the best player on the team, like obviously Andre Iguodala when with the Warriors' first title, he was not the best player on the team, but he won Finals MVP. Why? Because he did he did enough on offense and he covered LeBron. So, yeah, exactly. And he held LeBron to a, a measly forty points a game or something like that. That's right, <laughs> and one MVP. Legend. <laughs> um, real quick on these two wings, Culver and Hunter. They're similar in ways, in, well, they're similar in size. They're similar in the fact that they stayed two years in college. But their styles are a little bit different. You know, uh, in college, Culver was a little bit more perimeter-oriented, a little bit more willing to put the ball on the ground facing up guys. You know, Hunter had really nice moves going to the hoop. I thought he was a really crafty finisher. He de- definitely uh, developed a shot and looked good doing it. He shot friggin' 45% from three or something like that. Might have even been higher than that. High free throw percentage. Um 
with Hunter, do you look at him as more of a 3 and D guy, or do you look at him with upside to become a more ball-dominant wing to, you know, initiate some offense? No, I think I think it's more of that 3 and D uh, template. I think I kind of like Torian Prince as, as a comp. I don't really know why, <laughs> but I've just been underwhelmed with a lot of the comparisons that I've seen. I think, yeah, I think he's most he's pretty basic in terms of I mean he's good I think he's a really good defender might be more D than 3 mm. although he's has been a really good shooter but I think I think he's more of a role player than I don't think we're nobody should be expecting a Kawhi leap or something like that so he's a fourth or fifth starter not a second or third starter and we're not even saying first yeah I would say I would say at the at the best third third or fourth and, yeah. and the way some of these lotteries have gone in the past 10 years, and even going back further than that, but even just specifically about the players in the league right now, this 5 through 10 range is so hit or miss. I mean, you think about all the top 10 picks who ended up on the Knicks in the past couple of years, Mario Hazonia, Emmanuel Moutier. Uh, if you even look into some other guys like uh, Josh Jackson, Jonathan Isaac started to show something, but for a minute we were like, "Who? The, what's this guy doing? He started to show something, but this 5 to 10 range is such a freaking desert sometimes that if you can get a guy who you know is going to be your fourth best player or your fourth, third starter on your team, that is not a bad play, especially for a team like the Suns or like the Hawks who just need quality talent wherever they can get it. And that's why Hunter is a really safe pick, but it's a good pick for whoever gets him. They'll be happy to have him. I tend to agree. But let's talk about the other guy here, Dar- um what, uh, Darius oh, before we move on, I, sh- oh, yeah. we should, I should just mention that Hunter is a really, really good defender, and he did completely blanket Culver in that title game. Right. So he's a he's a player in his own right. It's not. It's just I think he has very limited, you know, potential in the offensive end in terms of what he's going to be able to do. Right, and the simple intuition would say Hunter outplayed Culver, Hunter over Culver, but it, we know it's not just that. There's much more space in the NBA game. There's much more reliant on being able to create your own shot, and Culver definitely benefits from those two things as being a top-tier player over Hunter. Um, I definitely agree with that one. So Darius Garland is a point guard who really had a weird year. I mean, he came out absolutely lighting up college basketball, averaging you know only 16 points and a handful of assists, but he made some incredible plays. His pull-up jump shot was in off the charts his ability to create his own shot was off the charts and he showed flashes of being able to finish with spin and floaters around the rim and also flashes to make really nice passes but we saw six games from this guy we saw six games now his stock has been kind of rising or at least he's been getting talked about more in this draft process where's your confidence level on a prospect like Darius Garland I mean with the pull-up jumper that's where the confidence is in that and pretty much that alone so, I mean, I could probably be talked into him no matter where he's drafted. I think the Cleveland would be kind of weird with him and Colin Sexton. But, and they would just be I mean, even if, even if he ends up <laughs> they couldn't stop as the like soul. the four pick. In New- Sorry, go ahead. No, I just said and if he was with Sexton, they would be hemorrhaging points. They couldn't stop a soul. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just would seem kind of weird. But I, I think I, w- I wouldn't be that shocked even if he somehow ends up in New Orleans, even though everyone's saying that. They're going to probably trade that pick. I could see him coming off the bench and just being because they do need some guys that can space the floor well. Right. So I mean, Holiday's always been a lot better as an off-ball guy uh, in terms of his catch and shoot. 
better than like dribbling for popes. Um, but I mean, you're going to need some three point shooters. I could see them talking themselves into having another guard, especially being that Drew and uh, Lonzo are both like six four, six four, and six six. Right, and and so. good defenders too. Yeah, to make up for some of his uh, defensive lacks. So I, I actually. I have him ranked fourth on my ranking, so I kind of I like him a lot. I mean, when I right. watch his limited tape, I am just enamored with his ability to shoot from all over the court, to do pull ups, step backs, side steps, um, get inside the the lane, and finish over taller defenders with floaters and spin off the glass. I, I'm definitely intrigued by this guy, and he has a lower floor than than Culver and Hunter, but. When you look at some of these point guards, I know I just went on this whole thing about how wings are more important, but when I watch him play and I watch his his game highlights, this guy can do stuff that not many people can do in the league. I think of Kemba Walker. I think of Damian Lillard. I don't think he's going to be a 25-point-per-game guy in the next four years, but as he gets better and healthier and more experienced and a little bit stronger, I can imagine him as a lock for 20 points a game five years down the road. So it's a little bit more of a project, but some of these teams who definitely desperately need a point guard or desperately need scoring punch, I look at him as a guy you don't want to miss out on when you see him rain threes in a couple of years, especially where this league's going. So I, I do like Garland a lot, but I will be lying if I said there was no pause there at all with his size and with his, you know, he gets bullied a little bit with strong defenses, and when he gets double teamed, he tends to he made some mistakes in those six games in college. So it's tough, but from a talent standpoint, I actually do have him a bit higher than those other two. All right, I can see it. I I guess I would just question his passing ability a little bit more. Right. But other than that, I I can pretty much see all that come to fruition. So I think it's completely reasonable to be high on Garland. So we're through six guys, and we're already uh, 30-some-odd minutes through this podcast. These are the six guys who will be the most talked about off the bat, especially, you know, depending on situation, whoever's on the Knicks is going to be talked about. Lakers—oh, the Lakers don't have a pick anymore, but whoever's with the Pelicans through that Lakers trade is going to be well talked about. And I could see Hunter being the guy who kind of slips through the cracks and goes under the radar and just does his thing and is this quality guy. But then we get seven— through 18, right? And it gets real, real mucky. Very varying reports on all these guys, from Colby White and Cam Reddish to the Frenchman Sekou Domboya, if I said that correctly, um, down to Rui Hachimura and Brandon Clark. You got Romeo Langford and Nasir Little. You got names who you know a little bit about. You know they can do some things, but what's it going to mean at the next level? There's a lot of muckiness, a lot of gray area with these guys, and it's going to be very interesting how it falls out. So let's talk about some of them. I'm with Gabe Allen, my draft guy. I love talking draft with you uh, of the Lottery Mafia. So, Gabe, give me, when I mentioned all those guys, you know, 7 through 15 or 18, wherever you want to go with it, give me give me a guy that you see and it stands out you wouldn't want to miss out on him. Well, I mean, outside of draft Twitter favorites, which I'm as high on Brandon Clark and Grant Williams probably as anybody else, um, I mean, I would say I can see the upside on Reddish. I know a lot of people are burying him because he didn't have a good year, obviously. Um, but, I mean, I think, again, just a lot of times we jump on players when they're really young, and it's like, oh, he had a bad year. He's not going to be good. But it's like, all right, so what if he st- he could, you know, suppose he stayed in school for another year or two and then really improves his stock, and then he's a top pick or something. So, you know, I think – Going into the draft, obviously, it's easy to just look at his percentages and stuff and say, oh, well, this guy, you know, he's 
overrated. He shouldn't be a lottery pick. I think there's a good chance that he ends up being one of one of the better, one of the more well-rounded uh, wings and three and D guy who can put the ball on the court. So I think, you know, he's one of the guys that could be, we could be surprised to see him drafted in that, what was it, one through six range. I think it wouldn't be that surprising if he's drafted a little bit higher. There's got to be a team who saw him work out, you know, right in front of their face and see him just drain shots on air. Be like, this guy has something that people just don't have. He has size, he has athleticism, and he has a smooth stroke that didn't work to his advantage in college. 33% was very underwhelming. His catch and shoot was actually lower than his overall percentage. Um, so it's off-putting, to say the least, but I am with you. I actually saw on the gambling websites that now exist due to new rules in America that one of his over-unders is um, to be drafted before Colby White, and we'll talk about Colby White in a second. But if I'm looking at this draft, this goes back to our wing thing versus a point guard, I see this Cam Reddish guy and I see Colby White. They're both, you know, they have decent floors. They're going to be in the league for a bit, for sure. I, I definitely feel that way. But the upside on Cam Reddish, if I told you somebody between 7 and 20 on this most big boards, on the, on the consensus big board, has a chance to be a top three player in this draft, I would be lying through my teeth to say it wasn't Cam Reddish. This guy's ability is off the charts. Now, he does have a weird history of high school kind of disappearing. He obviously disappeared at times in Duke. And when Zion was hurt and they needed him the most, he also didn't really show up that well. So it's really tough to take the information we have and the video film that we have and say this guy's going to be surefire, but when you just look at him straight up, he's incredible. Does he yeah, have... Yeah, I, I think nobody's really... I don't think anybody can really confidently say that he's going to be surefire, that's for sure. But I think when you look at the construction of the team and you have RJ playing the way he did and likely will continue to play, and then you have obviously Zion, which he should have had more touches than than RJ when they're taking up a lot of the offense and then you have basically no three-point shooting apart from Reddish who didn't end up making his threes so then it's like you have no spacing except for your theoretical spacing right and it's like at that point it's like he's not really spending much time with the ball in his hands he's mostly a catch-and-shoot guy sometimes it's gonna be tough to get rhythm that way so I think I wonder how many problems that he was facing partially were due to fit like, how much of that is just me making excuses, though? What do you think? It's true. I, I, I'm arguing myself on those same exact points because we talked about spacing on the NBA floor earlier in this podcast. It changes in the NBA level. College is super tight. There's not a lot of space. People play zone defense. That doesn't exist in the NBA. And Cam Reddish is the type of guy who should, theoretically, like we said without a shot, he theoretically should greatly benefit from space, from the ability to attack, attack closeouts and to hit shots but it's theoretical, and that's what's so tough. But that's, this, that's the NBA draft. That's what it is, right? We had two guys um, in this NBA late playoff run in Giannis and Kawhi who were 15, number, number 15 picks who turned into incredible superstars. Is Cam Reddish more Paul George, who was drafted a little bit? You know, he wasn't top five. I think he was, what, nine or eight or something like that? I think he was 10. 10? I believe. Is he more yeah. Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, or is he more Jeff Green, who one night, if you catch him right, you're like, wow, this guy's awesome, and you see him play the next game, and he's 0 for 4, 30 minutes, no points. Like, that's the variation with Cam Reddish, which has to be petrifying for front offices. And I, I don't know what to do with this guy, but I, I want to take a swing on him. That's how I feel, basically. 
Yeah, I mean, we keep hearing about the Hawks and their supposed interest in him. I think that's a great fit. I mean, you're going to have Trey moving the ball. Herter is an underrated passer. You get, the ball is going to be flying around. He's going to be getting to play with it a little bit instead of just operating, you know, only catch and shoot, really. So I think a situation like that, that allows him to kind of be a little bit more involved without having, without really having any more pressure to like to make stuff happen because he's not going to be the lead guy. I think that kind of situations would be really good for him. So in the NFL draft, um, one of the things a lot of people like to say is best player available, right? You take the best player on the board, you follow your big board and you figure it out later in the NBA. It tends to be a little bit different, right? Like, if you have Trey Young, the likelihood of you taking Kobe White, even if he's the best player on your board, greatly drops, right? So how much do you consider fit when you get to the middle end of this lottery and so on? I mean, I, again, it, it's all it's very dependent on where the team is in their construction, right? So if you already have star player like so again it goes back to like the knicks right so they don't have star player x to that's already there unless you want to go there with dennis smith but so that's the argument okay just take barrett and hope that he turns out to be a star so then again you go later to like maybe nine or something uh maybe wizards are moving bradley beal or i don't know what team exactly uh but a team that already kind of has that doesn't really have a star, you can make the push a lot more for just taking the upside and always playing the upside. And a lot of times that's pretty much what the teams are in the lottery is they don't really have much going for them. So you can, especially at that point, you're taking for upside. But I think generally throughout the whole draft, you, you want to take best player available and just hope that you can figure it out. Right. Like you look at the Bulls, the only thing they probably wouldn't take is a seven-foot floor spacer because they have one of those. They definitely have that, and they're confident in that. But other than that, Chris Dunn, uh, you know, you're not, not putting all your stock in his basket. Same for Zach Levine, same for their wings, same for— I mean, Wendell Carter is a nice prospect many people still like, but if you run into a center, you're not going to turn him away because you have Wendell Carter. So, like you said, it's very situational, and it's— Well, I think the dependent. Bulls would be an example of you cannot draft a big man. With when you already have Carter and Markinen, I mean, if they did that, that would be terrible. Right. Yeah, I guess with so that would be Carter one exception. I guess to the rule, maybe. But when you talk uh, guards and wings, you know, you're not like you said with Dennis Smith. You're not saying Chris Dunn. We have our point guard. Right. Right. Yeah. If it's guards or wings, you. I mean, what the heck? You can get. You can have more. So speak, you can always have more. Speaking of one of those guards, Kobe White. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, he's a blur. He gets up and down the court, so I, and I think he would be a good fit for what was six is Phoenix and seven is, is Chicago. I think either of those teams would would probably be a pretty good fit. Um, even New Orleans, if they were to trade down, again another team that likes to play fast. So, yeah, I, I mean, I I, th- I think I might be a little bit higher on White than I mean, maybe not if he's supposed to go seven. I'm probably about neutral to where he is, but I mean, if you buy. Him maybe adding a little bit on defense, or at least just not being terrible, because he is six five. I think that's a pretty decent start if he's going to be hitting threes and he's going to be defending. He's already a pretty decent passer too. Right. So, I mean, I think he's a pretty well-rounded player. What do you think? Kobe White is not my favorite guy in the, in the draft, to be honest. Um, okay. With what I've seen of him, for being six five, I trust Darius Garland at six three to get a shot off more than Kobe White. He shoots a little low. He doesn't have a great plethora of off-the-dribble moves or step-backs or things that are 
seeming to become very important in today's NBA. So on that regard, like I look at Garland as white and white as those two top tier point guards outside of Morant. And I take Garland just off the shot creation. But if you're drafting Kobe white to not be a franchise superstar and you're drafting him to be a supplement or a starter, then I think he's a worthy pick, but I don't love his upside. I think he has a lower ceiling than Garland and, uh, even going down to some other guards, maybe that I, I do think their upside is there. Maybe Robio Langford. Um, I, I kind of, even though he's not a true point, I do kind of like his upside a little more than Kobe White. I, I don't love how he creates shots, and that kind of scares me a little bit. Um, what he can do at the next level, it's very weird. He's one of those guys who, it's like he stayed a second year because he had such a great second half of the season. Like he wasn't projected to even enter this draft, and then he had a super hot. Second half of the year, shot well, played fast, looked really good, and all of a sudden, boom, he's a top eight pick. And that's a really big transition for a guy in one year, and I don't super trust his ability to become a great player, but I do think he's going to be a fine player. Yeah, you make a pretty compelling argument. I would just say I think you know, he could be a different type of point guard than Garland and still provide you know similar, if not more, value. So. You know, there's there's a lot of different ways to the mountaintop. I don't think he's. I definitely agree with you. He's not in the same realm in terms of pull up shooting. So, but obviously there are other factors. Yeah, for sure. The, he's probably more consistent. He may be a, a lower risk pick than some of these other guards like uh, Garland. But the upside, I don't. But we'll love. be pretty surprised if he gets drafted ahead of Garland, though, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd be I would be shocked. Uh, if he got drafted ahead of Garland. But the reddish versus white thing, even though they're not the same position, they are like very entrenched in that 6, 7, 8 range. I will be interested on who goes first out of those two for some reason, even though they're not the same position or didn't go to the same school or anything like that. Uh, but I would be intrigued because they're opposites in the sense that Kobe had a big stock increase where he went from probably not entering the draft to a top 10 pick, and reddish went from the number 3 pick to... Eesh. So that's that's why I kind of that's kind of why I put those two guys together. They have opposite uh, story. It almost lines. sounded like a, an odd pronunciation of his last name. Rish. <laughs> that's good. That's pretty good. Speaking of last names, by the way, there are two international prospects here that are lottery or close to lottery picks: Seku Dumboya and Goja Bitats, which I probably said wrong. Um, I think, I think it's Batazzi. Batazzi? Okay, so you have an affinity to one of these guys. One's a little more up in the air, and the other one you have some faith in. So describe your thoughts on our international lottery prospects. Yeah, I mean, I think I would draft Goja if I had to pick one of the two, for sure. Um, it's pr- just pretty well-rounded center. Pr- probably the best center prospect in the class, if we're not counting Zion. Um, and Sekou, I think, uh, you said it before we did, started the pod, that, yeah, he might be t- two years away from being two years away. So, I mean, he's more kind of a, a ball of clay, but definitely an athletic specimen. Right. I mean, so. you, look, you look at Sekou, and you hear that term, he's the youngest guy in the draft, right? And that can be looked at as a super positive thing. of Like, oh, imagine what he's going to be when he's 22, right? And we heard that with Frank Nielakina. When he's 22, is going to be the end of his rookie contract. You know, like, he'll be four years into the league by the time he, like, grows into his body and becomes a real man. Like, are you willing or are you trustworthy enough in your organization to make that pan out? Like the Knicks now are apparently willing to trade Frank. And I think when you drafted Frank, you knew this was going to take time. He showed signs of defense, obviously. Occasional, and when I say occasional, I put some emphasis on it. Occasional 
offensive skill with passing and some touch. Not great numbers, obviously. He had horrible advanced analytics in the league. But if you told me in three or four more years that Frank is a okay starter where he's playing great defense, he can hit an open three, and he moves the ball well enough, like I will not be shocked by that. I'm not selling all my Frank Nilakina stock despite his bad start to an NBA career and injured start to an NBA career. But with Sekou, where is your risk analysis lie? Do you think it's worth it? Do you trust your organization to get him from 18 years old to a productive 23-year-old? Because we look at the past 10 years in the draft, and so many of these guys are off their teams by year four and five. They're gone. They're they're gone, and they're not your project anymore. So when you see Goja, a well-rounded guy who has some touch from the outside from three-point range, he has good fundamentals inside. I mean, he seems like a guy who... You put on a team this year, and he earns 12 to 15 minutes a game. You put Sekou on a team right now, if they're remotely competitive, 35 wins, he may not see the floor. And that's a little dangerous for me when you're talking lottery and a guy who can be off your team in four years. Yeah, like you said, I think a lot of it comes down to fit and you know which team they get drafted by. If Sekou gets drafted by the Wizards, I'm not going to be feeling that great about him. <laughs> if he gets drafted by the Heat... What, do the Wizards have problems with uh, development and keeping people healthy? Uh, no, just more just the state of the organization yeah. right now. Okay, okay. I mean, they've it, it, developed fine, but I just mean in terms of the whole, it's just, you know, everything is on fire. And they don't have a GM also, by the way. Yeah. I mean, they're going to be auto-drafted tomorrow. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> Their computer's going to be off. It's going to pick automatically whoever's next on the board. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you uh, what do you think about those two guys? I'm leaning I'm leaning Goja. I just I mean, Sekou, you watch him in highlights and you watch him run the floor and you watch him even shoot and it's it's a specimen to watch him do it, but he's doing it against not great players. He's doing it kind of erratically, like he's all over the place. People like to throw around this Pascal Siakam and then put the caveat, "Well, he's not going to be as good as that, but it's a similar type of player, right?" Yeah. I don't like putting that comparison on him. It's kind of like how, you know, as soon as you see Dragon Bender a year after Porzingis, you say, well, he's basically Porzingis. But he wasn't, clearly. Even with Laurie Markkinen, he's basically Porzingis. He's much more like Porzingis, but his style of play is actually pretty different. They just have a similar skill set and similar size, and they're international. So Sekou Domboya from France and Pascal Siakam from Africa, like, it, it becomes too easy. It becomes a a bad comp in my eyes because it, there's not enough there after we just saw Spicy P absolutely ball out for portions of the playoff. Yeah. I mean, I'll admit I don't have a really strong take on Seku. I'm sure there are a lot of people that have watched more than me. But yeah. I, I would be skeptical, to, especially just some of, some of these teams about taking him. I would say that he's definitely fit-dependent in terms of how I'm going to feel about where he gets drafted. And he's a Cam Reddish guy in the sense that if he goes 9 or 8, not going to be shocked. If he slips to 16, also wouldn't be shocked. Um, and same, I mean, Goja is kind of similar too. He His range is like 10 to 16 as well. So there's a lot of movement here, a lot of moving parts. And two reasons why there's so much movement is because there are two guys, both from the same school, who seem to be like quintessential number 12 picks in the draft. Like, I think the floor on these two Gonzaga guys, Brandon Clark and Rui Hachimura, is very high. You got NBA players in these two guys. Their ceiling is debatable. And you mentioned in passing before that you like Brandon Clark a lot. I don't know if we're going to agree on this one, but why don't you go first? Brandon Clark, you're high on him. Why? I mean, I just see a really unique player, 
and again, these are a lot of times you, the most unique players are a lot of times the guys that are people miss on or they end up being sleepers. So, I mean, he's not he's not anywhere near as long, but I I kind of tend to favor the Sean Marion comparison. That he's just such a freak on defense, such a such a great defender, such a high IQ, and what he lacks in height and, and wingspan, he's making up for with explosiveness. So, I think. You know, if he gets drafted to the what is it, the Timberwolves at eleven, or or if he goes to the Hawks eight at eight or ten, those kind of like in that kind of range, he's going to be really well set up, and I think we're going to see that he's a really valuable player. How do you feel about him and John Collins? Is that a little Spider-Man meme next? Like, or is that are they different? Players? Uh, no, because I think Collins can pop to the three-point line, and he's not really doesn't really have a defensive reputation, so. I think that yeah, they would other, actually fit right. pretty well together. Other than like the weak side shot blocking, probably. He has not much of a defense reputation. Um, right. So Brandon Clark, there's some things I firmly agree with you on. Like His defensive motor, his defensive ability is so translatable. There's something to be said about guys who give a shit. And Bill Simmons says that a lot. He uses that exact line. I want guys who give a shit on my team. And Brandon 100%, Clark. 100%. I couldn't agree more. He definitely is going to give a shit. And same for Rui Hachimura. They're definitely going to care. They're going to work to rebound. They're going to take some of their. For Clark, it's more size. For Hachimura, he has you know his solid size and he has probably, I think, a little bit better athleticism. He has better wingspan, obviously, but Clark works so damn hard, and I think that's transferable. But his athleticism kind of freaks me out a little bit when I watch his game tape and I watch how he scores and I watch how he dunks. It's a weird thing that I picked out, but I couldn't get it out of my head when I watched him. He never jumps off one foot. Like, never. I think I watched nine game highlights of him, and he jumped off one foot one time. It's always a two-foot stop jump, and it's explosive. He has good hands. The defensive versatility, we all, I, I definitely explain all that. But the way he scored with those just you know paint floaters and those jump hooks and those stuff that he does there... I don't know what it's going to mean in the NBA. Is he going to be able to just out-athlete people near the rim the way he did at college? He just, in college, so many times when he was scoring 25 points in, in certain games, he's just rising above smaller people and putting in easy, basically uncontested floaters. And I don't trust that that much moving to the NBA level. And then the athleticism thing in transition, like I said, great hands, but his athleticism freaks me out. The way he jumps, the way he runs the court, it doesn't always look super smooth to me, and that makes me a little nervous when he's finishing in NBA defense traffic and trying to score over guys who are bigger, faster, stronger than he is. It's an interesting point you make about the, about the one about the two feet jumping. Um, I feel like when you don't you if you're more of a, def, a dependent player, that's not really initiating the offense though i feel like maybe that's not as big of an issue to where it's not like he's like blowing by people off the dribble and then he needs to jump off of one foot i don't think he, i mean he's not going to be like having extension finishes like siakam right like he's not he beats a somebody to the he doesn't have right to be a creative but, but sure. if he ends up in the right spot like again like a like atlanta where he's got trey young spoon feeding him to a large extent and then he's you know making just making smart plays uh when he gets cut off he can make a good pass so i mean I think, you know, obviously it would be it would be nice if if you had some assurance that he was going to be able to shoot, but I'm not sure I'm not sure that 
even that's really enough for me to not not value him as a lottery guy in this draft. That's fair. I mean, I also think he's a lottery guy. So let me preface. Part of the reason why I wanted to be a little bit nitpicky on him is because there were some NBA draft hipsters out there, one who we both like and Jonathan Sharks from The Ringer. Like, he had Clark number two on his big board. And I, I think, like, that's a massive overstatement of loving his energy and loving his versatility on defense and his his improvement. Like, he showed that he is now able to shoot a mid-ranger. Will that become a three-pointer? It's theoretical, but it's possible. I don't want to draft Brandon Clark and think he's going to be a corner piece to my franchise. I want to draft Brandon Clark and be like, this guy's going to make an impact on all the other parts of the game. And I think you can do that. So I didn't want to make it seem like I don't like him at all. But from an upside standpoint, I do think his floor is like superstar role player. But then again, yeah. at 12, or his ceiling, I don't know if I said floor. His ceiling is like a really great role player. I don't see him as an all-star. I don't see him as some guy who's changing your franchise or even scoring 18 points a game at the NBA level. I think he's more of a, 14, a 12 to 14 and 8 guy with other ways to affect the game. So he's a positive player, but I wanted to kind of make sure I made it clear that I don't think he's some spectacular prospect. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I think most people aren't suggesting to actually draft him in the top three, but I don't think that the take that he's going to be, that he could be, or will be a top three player from this draft is that rash. I mean, I think some of, some of what we're calling energy maybe also is just basketball intelligence, basketball IQ, knowing how to play the game. So and he's got that. So a lot of times, again, you want to bet on guys that just know how to play the game. And he, I mean, as far as I can tell, he knows what he's doing out there. That's true. And like, like I said before, it means something to know what you're doing, and it means something to give a shit. And he knows those two things pretty, pretty damn well. So Brandon Clark, I, maybe I came out a little harsh on him. I don't feel as badly as I said. But you know when there's like certain guys – who, but do you disagree about Atlanta or Minnesota or any of that? I mean, oh, no, again, I, I don't think anybody's really arguing like that he should be like a top five pick. I think right. These, you know, most most people would argue more. Oh, you should trade back and get him rather than draft even like a guy like Art. I mean, I'm not saying the Knicks should do it per se, but like he's he's, he's not teams, a high variance guy, but his his like threshold is relatively high. I also just I don't know. I not to like nitpick you're like no you made a lot of fair points nitpick but just i feel like you know sometimes we get too caught up in like all-star like like a term like that like all-star like i don't know was ben wallace ever an all-star maybe he was maybe it was one one year i don't know i mean one defensive player of the year obviously plenty of times but you know some some players aren't really they don't they don't get that all-star tag but it doesn't mean that they're not super impactful you know what you know what you just did in a very polite way you just told me that I'm a hypocrite because I went on and on before. About, no, I didn't say that. No, no, no. You said it in a very nice and smart way, but I'm saying it in a in a mean way to myself because I went on and on before about how people miss on so many picks because you know they try to shoot for the young person or they shoot for the upside. And here I have Brandon Clark, who stayed in college for three years, who transferred to a great school, had an amazing season, proved that he can impact the college game in an incredible way. And it most likely will translate to a positive way in the NBA. And I'm like, yeah, you know, but he can't jump off one foot. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of doing what I hate the most. But I, like I said, I think it came from a place where, like, I saw some of these rankings from these NBA draft hardos that I'm one of them. 
I was like, I can't get there. I can't quite get there. But that being said, like if my team was the Atlanta Hawks and I got Brandon Clark, I'd be thrilled. I'd be absolutely okay. thrilled. Okay. So let me be more clear about how I felt about him because I definitely came out a little strong. No, no, I was just clarifying. I was just checking what you were saying. No, you got to check me because if you don't, <laughs> if you don't check me, you know who knows where the hell we're going to end up. <laughs> and that's why I need you here, Gabe, to to keep me in line with some of these prospects because to have such a strong take on all of these guys is really hard. So when I do find something that I notice that I do think is important, like I do think this stuff's important, but it doesn't take away from who he's going to be as an NBA player. It just limits it. So it's important that you check me there because he's going to be a real NBA player for like 14 years and we'll, we'll know who he is for a long time. So, All right, do we spend enough time on Brandon Clark? No, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> All right. So Brandon Clark, Gonzaga. No. Um, Rui Hachimura, you know, I think he's another guy who's just like, we're going to see him in the league for 12 years. There's not much to be said about him. He can rebound. He's going to work his ass off. He can score around the rim. He can shoot a little bit of three. Probably will continue to take more of those as time goes on. But he's a guy that you like. He's similar to the Clark ilk, if, if you ask me. If you have any uh, strong disagreements there, stop me. If not, I'll move on. Uh, no strong disagreements. I think he's going to be an interesting case, though, just as a fascinating story. Uh, I think he's one of the first, if not the first, uh, player from from Japan to be Division One guy, right? Something like that. Right. And uh, you know, he's. I think he's a late, another late bloomer type, and it'll, it's going to be interesting test case to like people always saying like, oh, like you have it or you don't in terms of, like feel and like knowing how to play the game and how much can you like learn like as you go. So like I think he still has a lot of like edges to round out to round round off, but there's there's definitely plenty of potential. Yeah, for sure, and that's a good point. Um, all right, so let's move on through some of these more some of these other guys, and let's go not rapid fire, but let's go through these guys a little bit quicker because we spent a lot of time on the big names of the draft already. So, uh, Nikhil Alexander Walker, Shagel just his cousin. He's a guy who people are really liking in that middle of the first round, and then you have the kind of polar opposites in the sense where Nikhil Alexander Walker is looked at as a guy who's going to work his ass off on defense, know what to do with the ball, be a solid player all around, not a superstar. And you have Nasir Little, who had not a good season. He averaged less than 10 points. He was supposed to be some superstar freshman. He's supposed to be the best player on North Carolina's team. He may have been their fourth best player, maybe, their fifth best player at times. So diff- that this is where the draft gets really lucky, and this is what I was talking about before. So from the end of the lottery through like the mid-20s, Give me a guy who you like all around, whether it be a safe pick or a high swing, like high risk, high reward pick. Well, I guess we got to go Grant Williams to satisfy draft Twitter. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I just see a lot of Paul Millsap in this game. Just tough shot maker, can do a little bit of everything, really strong, lower body, really, really like quick anticipatory skills. Um, I, no, I think this is another guy. He might fall into the twenty, into the mid twenties, where we're saying like, oh, like what a team's gonna do, and like the, there might it might be that there all the picks in between ten, in between like a certain range, and they're like the lottery, and twenty or so are just like meh, meh, and then you get to Grant Williams, and he could be this literally the steal of the draft. Yeah, he's a guy when you watched him in Tennessee, like he was always around the ball, he was always making plays, making shots has the range to pull out from three a little bit. So strong-bodied. 
he's one of those guys who falls into the category of, oh, he's been in college for a couple of years. He's not a top ten pick. He's going to be a first rounder, but later on, like we don't, we'll see what happens, right? But like you said, there is a really strong case for him, kind of similarly to Brandon Clark, that he's in the league for fifteen years. He does some really good things. If he's on a good team. He could sneak into an all-star. He could really put up some decent numbers if he rounds out his game. Like, Grant Williams is one... He's he's literally, like, the quintessential... Oh, he's too a little too old, a little too small for his position, but he's really And he's good. only 20. But he's, he's really good at basketball. He turns 21 very soon. And what do he stay for, two years or three? Uh, three. Yeah, he stayed for yeah, three. three. So he's a young junior, really. But, yeah. like... He did so many good things, but he's a little bit older than you would like. Stayed at college for one more year than most draft people like. A little bit smaller than you like, but he knows how to play basketball, and he knows what to do. What about you in this range? Do you have any sleeper guys in this? You're saying Romeo, maybe? Yeah, so I really like Romeo Langford. I think his athleticism is is fantastic. I think he's a type of guy who had a a weird season just based off of his, like, he missed, like, a third of the season on suspension, right? So that was kind of strange, but, and he also had a thumb injury, so that was a little weird. Oh, wait, no, the the suspension was actually Kevin Porter, I believe, right? Am I mixing that up? Yeah, that's right. So mixed up my my guards. Uh, Romeo Langford had a thumb injury, but coming into the season, he was a top 10 pick. He was one of, I, I don't know if he was Mr. Basketball in Indiana, but he was a absolute superstar force in Indiana high school basketball, which is nothing to be la- to laugh at. And I look at him who had somebody who had a weird year but has true scorer potential, can put the ball on the floor, and granted he showed minimal playmaking skills, he is a guy who in the new NBA, when you need multiple guys to be able to penetrate, I look at him in that middle of the pack, end of lottery, early uh, 20s, late teens range, as a guy who's going to be able to impact the game in some ways. He's 6'6", Big wingspan, 6'11", can score from all different places on the court. And he's a guy who I definitely would love taking a flyer on in the middle of this draft. I could see it, especially with the thumb probably being a factor in his uh, crappy shooting this year. Right. Uh, one thing I can't get out of my mind, which he'll probably fix at the next level, but just really bothered me watching him, was defensively when he was off the ball. A lot of times he would be like, you would look and be like, oh, he's in decent help position. Then it was just like he would just hang out there. He would just get caught in no man's land all the time. Like he would never dig, dig down and like help and make like the right play when it, when he needed to helping. And he was like not really close enough to, you know, to do. He, it was just I don't know. It was just like a re- repetitive type of mistake that he was making. Right. It was like just getting caught in no man's land. Just bothered me. <laughs> no, it's true. And also, even with offense, he kind of did similar things sometimes where. You know, he would basically be caught in no man's land, but with the ball. Like he would, he would have the ball and then be like, "All right, now I got to do something." And whether it was his thumb, whether it was uh, mechanical, but hopefully those two things, whether it be mechanical or health, he can fix that at the next level. And my real goal for Langford isn't to be an all star per se, even though I think he has some of that upside. But looking at him as like a six man type, as a guy who can really do his own thing and not have to rely on many people, if he gets a little bit better shooting. And then he can do it. Like, he can score. He can take people to the rack. And that's what I like about him. And I love in the middle of the range, you're not drafting him and saying he needs to save our franchise, but you may be drafting him and say, hey, need you to get 12 off the bench. And I think he can really thrive in an off-the-bench role early in his career and see how he grows from there. 100%. 100%. Which is why. Yeah, I guess it just, it just 
I hope I hope he fixes that about his defense because I don't know why it just really bothered me. No, it's fair. I mean, that's so why like, that's I why could he... easily be sold on him if not for that as a clear lottery guy. And I think that's why he dropped, right? Some of those inconsistencies, some of those uh, mental things. He had an R.J. Barrett complex where he has confidence. Like, you watch him shoot the ball, and it may not be extremely pretty, but you know he's shooting with confidence. And that kind of goes a long way until you start shooting too much. <laughs> and that could be ugly otherwise. Um, but with the this pick, I think it's important for him. Just If he was drafted eighth, I think that sets too high a bar for him. But if he's drafted 14th through 18th, that's his sweet spot for me. And he's not really like Lou Williams because he uh, is much bigger and he is 6'11 wingspan and he's more physical. But that type of role where you can come off the bench and just score in different ways I think is important. As we see guys like Eric Gordon who were quintess- – I'm glad you brought him up. Quintessential six men who then in the end of games are finishing games or become starters because they're just that good. So I don't know if he's quite Eric Gordon. Eric Gordon, obviously, super talented and super strong for a smaller guy. But I, I have similar vibes with the ability to, to, to put the ball in the hoop. Both Indiana guys. Yeah. Hope oh. he irons out his defense. Right. And Eric Gordon's strong, man. I mean, Langford has wingspan, but he doesn't seem to be a super strong or whatever. Like, Eric Gordon just bullies people sometimes. You need to see some of that from him. Agreed. Um, another guy I want to talk about. And I'll let you take the floor because I think you might be sneaky in love. I think you might sneaky love this guy. Not even sneaky. You might just be very open about it. But he's also a controversial guy in this draft because of his health and his like very cartoonish size, as you explained to me before the pod. Bull Bull. He can go anywhere from 12 to 26, and I wouldn't be shocked. But this guy's a crazy prospect. What do you think? Yeah, 100%. I, I kind of want him to go to Miami just because they've – Obviously, played a lot of zone over the years. I think that's he's he's obviously going to need to play in a zone on defense. There's pretty much no chance he's going to be covering uh, out on the perimeter. But I mean, they're just in terms of actually chasing around a guy consistently. But from that zone position, I mean, he he does. One thing is he he does challenge out on the perimeter and make Anthony Davis like plays sometimes. Just based off the off the highlight package, you could easily be sold into taking him in lottery. At least I could. Like I sent you the one, the one play that I could probably just watch like a hundred times it was uh, at Madison Square against Iowa, where he blocks, he blocks a shot on the, at the three point line, recovers it, dribbles the length of the court up the left, up the up the left sideline to the left baseline, just drains a jumper. I literally don't think there's anybody else in the NBA that has the size and and you know shape of of him. But, uh, besides Anthony Davis, I don't think there's anybody else in the league that can make that play. Right. And I did say this to you before the pod as well. I'm going to say it again. Mitchell Robinson, baby. Yeah. (laughs) It bears repeating. Robinson can't really shoot yet, and I will emphasize that yet. I mean, Bull Bull, though. Yeah, sheesh. I mean, if if we got to see him for a full year, say he got hurt, you know, 26 games in instead of what? How many games did he play? 12? Not even? Did he even play 12 games? Maybe not even. Right. So 10 or 12, yeah. Sounds right. If we saw him play 30 games, if we saw him play 22 games, and he continued to do 21 and 10 with a two and a half blocks, like we would be, holy hell, Bull Bull is the next Porzingis times two because he's even bigger and he could do crazy stuff. Like we would be bugging out on Bull Bull, but he got hurt. They better not let him slip to Milwaukee at at 30. That's all I have to say about that. That's scary. That's like what Don Maker was supposed to be, really, if you think about it. 
Um, yeah, really. And this guy's Good got point. touch. He shot over 50% from the three in a short time. He's crazy. But then you look at his body, and it's so freakish. It's so scary. You ever see those, like, uh, 2K videos on Instagram or whatever where people make fake guys, and they're, like, nine feet tall? Like, that's what it looks like. <laughs> it actually it does. It really it's does. so freaking weird watching Bull Bull on the court. But, man, whoever gets him, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be interesting to see him play, and I can't wait. Let's keep this moving. Let's rapid fire some guys. I'm going to shoot names at you. Give me your quick thought, and I'll add or just say yeah, because if I agree. <laughs> um, Ty Jerome. Uh, bigger TJ McConnell with a jumper. Ooh. What do you think? That was that was pretty. I like that. I like that a lot. I think it's uh, – I like that. I'll say – um, less athletic Malcolm Brogdon knows how to do stuff. Virginia guy plays the right way, knows what to do with the ball. Um, he's slower than Brogdon. He's not explosive like Brogdon, but the floaters, the jumper, and just goddamn knowing what to do. Really, also, I'll also throw a tiny Joe Ingles. How about that? <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't wasn't expecting that last one. Brogdon um, gets thrown around. I won't give you too hard a time for it, but. Just know that deep down I'm seething. Because you love, would you love Brogdon? Is that why? No, I love Brogdon. There's no way. That's I'm sorry. Mm. First, let me just throw out another take: is that the Lakers should just throw all the money at Malcolm Brogdon. Oh, I'm in. I'm all just in for that. For, forego this free agency. For, forgo all the stars. Forgo trying to get this cap space that you're not going to get because the Pelicans aren't going to cooperate, and just throw all back up the Brinks truck for Malcolm Brogdon and make it happen I'm right a, now. I'm a Chris Middleton guy for sure, but it can be argued that Brogdon is equal or more important to that team. Oh, well, they'd have to have that full 30 or whatever for Middleton. I'm saying in terms of what they have like 20 they can get right now. If oh, no, I'm talking from the Bucks perspective. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I no, know. I'm talking from the Lakers. They need to back up the Brinks truck for Brogdon. For sure. But Milwaukee doesn't match. For the Lakers, Brogdon definitely would be the guy. But I'm saying for the Bucks, like sneaky Brogdon – just as poor as important as, as Middleton, which definitely says something because he's going to be a max player. <laughs> definitely, their top three guys. Um, Matisse Tybel, any takes? Yeah, uh, probably the best perimeter defender in the draft, or at least one of the one of the few, top few, at least outside the lottery for sure. Yeah, I mean, he was incredible in that zone. Watching some of those tournament games, just watching him fly around the court. I forget if. Like he was like setting records in those tournament games for steals. He he averaged three and a half steals a game. Like that's that's ridiculous. Yeah, he's insane. I again, it's the type of player where in the twenties, it's like pretty much every team is a really good fit. Yeah, I mean, no team would be sad to have a guy like that. And granted, if he becomes a black hole from the three point line, like if he really really can't shoot at all, like Roberson level, it gets tough. As we saw with the Thunder, they needed to make sure plenty of shooters were around Roberson. Um, but if he can be even remotely respectable out there, goddamn, is he going to be fun? Um, uh, we talked about Grant Williams. What about Carson Edwards, a March Madness sweetheart, but a small guard for the NBA who can shoot the hell out of it? Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to cut you too deep here, but I don't know. I I think Edwards, where he's going to get drafted, might be a better value than than uh, Garland. Mm. To be honest, I'm I'm a big Edwards guy. Okay, I mean, I think he, what was, you, what one, you... he was for anybody. I think he had to have been the, one of the most fun players to watch in the tournament. Insane. I mean, insane. What do you have? Three forty point games or something like that? He had ten threes in a game in college. Like what? 
he's incredible. I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up going in the teens somewhere. I think he's going to be a player. See, my thing with him is I think he's an NBA player. No question about it. He's an NBA player. I don't know if he's a starter or if he is a really good bench point guard. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, that has val- – I mean, look at Fred Van, Fred, Fred Van Vliet. Right. Uh, Fred Van Vliet. There you go. Third time's a charm. <laughs> yeah, Carson Edwards is fascinating. He's a classic, stayed in college for a couple of years guy, but absolutely was able to dominate his level, his peers. He was the best player on the court night in, night out many a times. So, man, it's hard to not take him with confidence, but the size stuff, I mean, he's six foot, but he's got a wingspan. He's got long arms, so it can make up for some of it. He can shoot, man. No, he can rip, and he can make hard shots because there's something to be said about a guy who can take shots when they're open or in, in swings, but when you could take all types of step backs, tough contested shots, and th- th- shots that you could create for yourself, it, it's a whole other level, and he, he has that for him. Uh, he's got a little bounce, too. Sneaky, sneaky bounce with the length. Dylan Windler from Belmont, and he takes. Oh, you just brought it, brought him up, Joe Ingles yes. part two. Yes, I like that. I mean, I think that's the obvious one for him, especially at the lefty, the stroke, because Joe Ingles can shoot the hell out of it. So can Windler, but Windler, what he did for Belmont, which he, you know, he probably wouldn't have been able to do this if he was at a premier Division One school. He was able to put the ball on the floor a little bit, and even though he's kind of slow, his height helps him get shots off over people off the dribble. He knows what to do with the ball. It's really Ingles. It's just Joe Ingles. That's all you need to say. What more, way more well-rounded player than people will give cre- give credit for. Uh, but you know, again, Ingles is a guy that his his career path was long and winding, and he wasn't a valuable piece at all until what twenty seven, twenty eight, or something. To just just until recently, so right. And he was could cut, be a long path for Windler too. We don't know. Cut multiple times was Ingles overseas all over the place and then obviously became one of the most important players on a top top ish team in the west pretty pretty impressive i love ingles so any ingles talk is allowed on the spy podcast (laughs) shamori ponds oh i i figured eventually you were going to get we were going to get to a sleeper a deep sleeper portion yeah that's where we're at and i and that was the part where i was going to give a little love to the short lefty point guards in new york uh, namely Pons and uh, Justin Wright Foreman. Wright Foreman um, out of Iona? Hofstra. Hofstra, 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 different Long Island school. Um, why do you like Pons? I mean, again, you look at the finals, you get a guy who can make plays off the dribble, can shoot the three, can make can make passes. It's going to be valuable, even if it's as a off-the-bench guy. It's still going to have value. And when you're drafting in the 30s, off the bench is probably where you'll end up, and that that's okay for him. Like He's not a guy you look at who's going to become some star. But if he can score off the bench, and if he can create off the bench, he becomes useful, as, as you just mentioned. He's got a fun game to watch. Kind of reminds me of Rafer Alston. Oh, very nice. And then shout-out to the New York point guards. Um, what did you uh, write Foreman? What, like he's a guy most people probably don't know about, but he absolutely lit it up for Hostra. 27 points. Yeah, he's he's an even smaller but but quicker version of Pons. I think he's I think he's quick to the point where if you're going to bank on, you know, make your who's who's the next Isaiah Thomas from this draft that could be the last pick of the draft or something, it might be him. Yeah, I mean Tremont Waters is kind of in that same realm where but he's more of a pure point and less of a scorer, but he's tiny. Like he is small. Him and uh right foreman are, are smaller point guards, but the one thing that they have over a lot of people 
is that they were able to to do it. Like if you get a guy at Duke like Trey Jones who, you know, if he's at a bad school, maybe his numbers look great and he's ends up in the second round of this draft this year, right? But you got a guy at Hofstra or LSU who is sneaky good this year. Like they get to really take control. I always thought about this with Langston Galloway and CJ McCollum. Like they were mm-hmm. four year players in college. They became the guy and they knew how to be the man with the ball and be the man whose teammates look to. And when it came to the NBA, it kind of showed. Now Langston Galloway is not CJ McCollum, but he's a useful NBA player. And McCollum dribble pass you. Right. You got to be able to do those things. And some of these guys from big schools who are upside, upside, upside guys never quite get the chance to learn how to become comfortable in their own skin. And I think some of these guys like Wright Foreman and Pons do gain that advantage. I agree. Admiral Schofield. Yeah. I'm surprised that he's, I mean, what is he, where is he at in the mocks these days? Is he even in the second round? Yeah. Yeah. Early second, early second, uh, 40 range, you know, but, uh, he's not a first round pick in many people's eyes for some reason. Yeah, I mean, that that probably makes sense. I mean, he's not super quick. He's definitely got a big, strong body, and he hits the, he hits the three. But, I, you know, I think as a second-round pick, you could do worse. You could, <laughs> definitely, you could definitely do worse. A ringing in voice in, uh, endorsement from Gabe Allen. <laughs> you, you can do worse. <laughs> I mean, he's he's a little bit older and, and like, you know, not quite as much upside as, as some of the older guys that, you tend to like, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think he's, I don't, I would much sooner take Thibault than, than him. Right. Yeah. Well, Thibault's like almost locked in to be a first rounder, I think. Right. Okay. So okay, yeah, I think that sounds right. Yeah. I, I think Schofield, he fits the mold of most of the time. I'll say he knows what to do most of the time. He's not big uh, from a height standpoint, but got enough wingspan to, to make it work, but he plays bigger than he is at time or he should play. I don't know how to explain it. He might play bigger than he is, and he is big, so. Right. Like, he, he looks he, like he should be 6'8", but he's 6'5", if that makes sense. But he, he also. gets after it. He hangs around the perimeter. He is a brick shit house. Like, he like, <laughs> he is the definition of a brick shit house. You look at that dude, he's yoked. He can shoot. I mean, 40% three-point shooter. Um, he had some questionable plays down the stretch in Tennessee games, but they really relied on him and Grant Williams to do a lot of stuff for them. I mean, he's a guy, when I look at some of these other names and guys I don't know, like Luka Samanich, like I don't know him from Croatia. I never watched him. Some other guys, like a guy from out of Old Miss and Terrence Davis, Darius Baisley, who didn't go to college but is a, a, a local-ish guy. I think he's from New Jersey. Um, like I don't know enough about them, and I'd rather take in the second round when I want a guy to just have a chance to make my rotation. Like Schofield, I have decent confidence in that, so... I don't think he's a groundbreaker by any means, other than based off of his strength. Uh, but I do like him. I like Schofield, and he has an awesome name, nonetheless. Indeed. All right. When so, in doubt, go for a great name. <laughs> exactly. Your, your Sell fan, the jerseys. Your fan base will be happy about it. Um, you have any takes? These are just two guys I kind of think are interesting. The Martin twins from Nevada. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, what Cody Cody is getting is, I think the. The better bet, yes, um, is likely to go undrafted. I think, yeah, but I think you know he's one of the, he might be one of the guys that goes undrafted that shouldn't have. So right, they're just two guys who I like to keep in radar on. I thought at Nevada they did some really good things and showed good versatility, and they're guys who they really learned how to 
be the man or be close to it, you know, be people who are comfortable making plays and that can go a long way in this undrafted market because there's people who are going to be signed undrafted moments after the draft ends. It's kind of how it goes. Like the Knicks had sights on Alonzo Trier last year and locked him up as soon as they could. Um, is there anybody specifically that we didn't mention that you don't like? How about that before we say goodbye? Ooh, that we don't like that we said. Um, like is there no, any, I like no, everybody. So there's no one who you've heard <laughs> hype about and you're just like, nah. Um, I mean, I guess it's more just that I can buy the upside for, for most of the guys that wherever they are. Um, I mean, everybody's list is different. I guess it depends who it's hard to, hard to say from, from that vantage point. Um, I mean, I would guess I would just say for the most part, I'm, I would fade centers. Like, okay. I don't know. I was not, I've seen people saying like, Oh, Bruno Fernando Ugh. is you know solid. Like, I don't know. I think he's, he's okay. I think he's not good. <laughs> he's okay. Like, I mean, I, he didn't really do anything against Naz Reed and in the uh, tournament game. And Naz Reed is nothing to write home about on defense. Right. Uh, what about, like, uh, what about Nicholas Claxton from Georgia? He almost wasn't going to enter the draft, decided to, and saw his stock just completely skyrocket. Now he's possibly a first round pick when he almost wasn't in the draft. He's a weird prospect. If you ask me, I don't have a super strong take on Claxton. Again, though, it's just like, all right, do you want to devote the time and resources to building his, to, you know, building him up? And I mean, maybe he's going to spend a couple of years in the G, at least a year or two in the G League. I don't know, but I mean, which team wants to take the leap? When again, it's like, okay, you can just get center X, and a lot of times, and they and they'll be fairly valuable and for sucks, like a cheap contract. Right. What sucks, like a guy like him, is when his stock rises his worthiness of a swing becomes a little less and less, you know, like if, if you're taken in the thirties and forties and fifties, like, yeah, why not? You know, we have a two second round picks. Let's take Claxton. He, he has some real upside that we can look at, but if he's now projected to be number 20 in the draft, it's like, God damn, we got to waste 20 on a guy. We really don't have a lot of feel for That's Yeah. Like that's I'd really rather wait till like mid second and get um like Jonte or something. Jonte Porter, Jonte Porter, man. I like that you brought him up because he's sneaky talented like he gets obviously outshined by his brother who hasn't played a game in the NBA yet Michael Porter but Jonte Porter in those games where Missouri was looked at when Michael Porter came back from injury two years ago I watched him I was like damn you know he's not super athletic but he's got touch he looks like he knows what he's doing out there but then he had the back-to-back ACLs and that's just a heartbreak but if he gets healthy and the ACL injury is a little bit more normal nowadays he could be a player no, one more super deep sleeper, just a fan of watching him play is Sagaba Kanate. I don't think I've any ever seen anybody that looked like they were playing volleyball on a basketball court. <laughs> yes. It's just fascinating to watch like him block shots and the way he goes up with two hands at the rim. He look, literally looks like he's going up to block a spike. Right. Yeah. I'm not great with volleyball terminology, but that sounds fair. That checks out, I think. <laughs> That's good stuff. All right, Gabe Allen of the Lottery Mafia. We talked about a lot of people here. Um, let's end off with a prediction each. All right, I think we I think we talked about this pick before, but we never truly predicted what happens at number four. Okay, so let's just go off the cuff. Give me your gut. Ooh, better let's check get... our phones real quick. Make sure no, the trade was yeah. pick wasn't already traded. No Shams tweets or Woj tweets. Let's see. I think we're clear on that. Just a second round pick trade to uh, 
to Miami or to Miami to Atlanta. The Timberwolves are aggressive or something. So give me your gut. Is there a trade and who is it? Or is it the Pelicans pick at four and who is it? <sighs> Just gut. All right. I'll no, say, no I'll say if, no the, if the Pelicans keep their, keep the pick or intend on keeping the pick, then they'll draft Culver. Okay. However, I think that, there, you know, there's obviously a good chance that they trade it, in which case, if they trade it or they intend to trade it down the line, I could totally see Garland being the pick. I think it will be Culver if they're, keep, if they're keeping it, if they're keeping the pick, and Garland if, they're, if someone else is, if they're picking for someone else. Right, so if somebody is willing to trade up, it's because they want Garland, and they need to jump other people who are going to take him after that. But if the Pelicans stay there, you think it's Culver? I think that train of thought's perfect. But that's just—it's kind of cheating. I guess I'll just—I guess no, I'll just I'm say. I'm not cheating. I think that's fair. That's, I think that's probably going to happen. <laughs> like if there's you let a, me off the hook. I don't think people are trading for Culver there. I think people oh, would trade for Garland. That was the Timberwolves. It says Stein. The Timberwolves have been aggressive in their attempts to move up in the draft from 11, and are among the teams that have discussed acquiring number four from New Orleans. Interesting. Boy, do we have a night ahead of us. I mean, there's going to be trades. The Celtics have three freaking picks, and no one knows what the hell they're going to do. They're going to trade up. They're going to take them all. It's a, it's going to be a whirlwind tomorrow, but I'm glad we got to talk through it on the SBNY podcast here tonight, Gabe. Any last words before we say goodbye? Oh, yeah. Wait, so what was your pick with that? Who's going to go fourth? No, I agree. I think that's going to happen. I think exactly what you said is going to happen. If the Pelicans pick, it's Culver. If they trade out, no matter who it is, it's Garland. That's That's how it's going to happen. I totally agree. I don't, All right. I don't even think that was a cop-out. I think that's exactly how it's going to go. <laughs> All right, we had a little too much agreement on this podcast. Next time we're going to have to, you know. Well, Besides it, Brandon Clark. Brandon Clark, we had a nice little nice little bit of disagreement. But. A little discourse. I mean, th- th- this is the thing, though, and we said it before we started recording. We don't freaking know about 85% of these guys. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't like Colby White very much. I don't like... Clark a ton, but I like him enough to take him at twelve. I wouldn't take swings on Claxton in the, in the, in the middle of the round. I would take on Langford. Like there's such like splitting hairs, really, because it's not that I don't like Kobe White. I just personally prefer other players in his in his range. Because to me, for me to sit here and say Kobe White's gonna suck, he's a bust, he's out of league in six years, is a lie. That's me trying to be hot take Pete, and that's not that's not how I do things. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like it's okay to to uh, agree we, we did discuss why we like certain guys or why we think upsides higher that's what it's all about you know everyone listening can now say you know what pete said about that guy was stupid but what he said about that guy i like you know and take their own thing of it all right we'll we'll at least do a little more yelling at each other next time <laughs> i'm all in for it uh maybe uh in a, in a couple weeks maybe some free agency stuff starts unwinding we can get back on here and talk about how some of these rosters are breaking out but for now gabe it was my pleasure. Thanks for coming on, talking NBA draft with me, and it's here. We'll see how it goes. It's going to be wild. Can't wait to see where all these people land, and can't wait to see Knicks fans boo no matter who they pick. <laughs> well said. <laughs> Thanks again, man. This you, is fun. You got it. SBNY Podcast. Have a good one.